0: God's will for her life. But it was really after meeting Elizabeth that she broke out in song and started rejoicing. It seems like it finally hit home for her. What a great person is going to be born to her and what a great thing God has done for her in her life. So we get to the song, which is all about Mary praising God for the great things that God has done for her. So in verses 46 to 49, the first part of the song, you will see that Mary begins by reflecting on how God has dealt with her personally. She rejoices in God, her savior. She magnifies the Lord. You see, Mary was a nobody. She was not a queen. She was certainly not wealthy. And unlike what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, she was not sinless. She too, just like every one of us, was a sinner who needed a savior. That's what she says in verse 47, isn't it? She rejoices in God, her savior. But even though she was a nobody, God gave her one of the most important calling any woman can receive in the history of mankind. And that is to be the mother of Jesus, the son of God coming in flesh into this world. You can imagine how amazing this would have been for Mary. Eve, Adam's wife, thought that it was going to be her. But it was thousands of years later. This news comes and it is Mary. Her life is going to be forever changed as a result of this news, as a result of what God has done in her life. She says in verse 48 that from now on, she is going to be called blessed forever. You know, it would have been very easy for Mary at this point to boast about how special she is compared to all the other women in the world. It would have been easy for her to boast in the fact that she gets to serve God in a special way, unlike anybody else. But that's not what she does in this song. You know, many times when people talk about serving God, all you hear is the uh, things that they do to serve God or the things that they have done to serve God. You almost never hear people talk about what God has done for them when they talk about serving God. But notice the focus of this song is not Mary. Yes, it has to do with her life. But this song is about God. So everything in the song is about the great things God has done for her. It is about how God is serving Mary greatly not the other way around. It seems like Mary realizes that her life is an instrument that God uses to bring great good for mankind. It's like her life is a canvas that God is using to write his story of how he is going to bring great glory for himself. And this is an important story that Mary gets to be a part of. For this is God drawing sinners to himself through his son, to bring salvation to them so that they may enjoy life with him forever. And God is drawing Mary into this great plan of redemption that God has for the world. Why Mary? Well, Mary doesn't deserve it. Mary doesn't deserve this role that God gives her to serve him this way. This is great mercy on Mary by God. Friends, even for us, You know, every time God calls us to serve him, we should see that it is God's mercy to us. Yes, it is about us serving God, but it is still God's mercy to us. If we are in Christ, no matter what God calls us to do, we must recognize that it is a privilege. No matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what our gifts are, if God chooses to use us in his great plan of redemption in the world, it is simply Because of his mercy to us Think of the great privilege That all Christians have To proclaim the gospel to the lost To call even one sinner To repent and put their trust in Jesus And how God would use us Weak and sinful as we are To bring people into his kingdom What did we do To deserve that responsibility To proclaim the gospel Absolutely nothing It is a privilege, isn't it? My dear brothers and sisters, that God would choose to use us to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to serve him in that way, even to suffer for Christ. It is a privilege, isn't it? It is all because of God's mercy to us. And just like Mary, we must remember that when God uses us and we get to serve God, there is so much joy, there is great rejoicing, and there is great blessing for us. And that is all God's mercy to us. You know, Mary's testimony here of how God is dealing with her personally is not the end of the story, but is anticipating a time in the future when she and all others like her would experience God's salvation in her life. For that is the greatest mercy that God will show sinners. It is looking forward to a time, this song, is looking forward to a time when Jesus will have finished his work and sinners who look to Jesus will experience great salvation that God has prepared for them. For isn't that the greatest reason to rejoice? It's just like what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. You see, even as Mary reflects on the mercy that God has shown her personally, she doesn't deserve it. She doesn't stop there. But in the next section, she goes on to reflect on the great mercy that God has shown to all those who fear him. So let's consider that secondly, verses 50 to 53, God's mercy to all who fear him. Now, you know, there are many ways that we can categorize the world, But there is only one way the Bible divides the whole world. And the whole world can be divided into two. Those who fear God and those who don't. Now, fear is a strange word, isn't it? Especially when you're using that word to describe a special, unique relationship that you have with someone. Fear is a strange word when you're using it to describe especially a loving relationship with God, isn't it? But what does it mean for God's people to fear him? This is the fear that is described of all those who trust in him. In other words, this is the fear in the hearts of all those who recognize that God is a holy God. He's righteous. And at the same time, he's compassionate, he's merciful, and that he's the only one that we can flee to for our refuge. And so this is the kind of fear, in other words that makes you run to God, not run away from God. To fear God means to see him as he's revealed himself in the pages of scripture to us and to approach him on the basis of how he's revealed himself to us. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about what this fear looks like in the hearts of all those who trust God's people. Well, one place that we see this very clearly is you know, on Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 20, after God gives his law to his people, the Ten Commandments, God appears to his people in the form of thunder and lightning, flashes of lightning, mountains smoking with sounds of trumpet. You know, in the Bible, those are all oftentimes signs accompanying God's presence. But when the people saw the signs of God's presence as they were approaching God, they got afraid. And they wanted to run away from God. And they told Moses they don't want to be near God. And Moses reassures them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, by saying this to them, to God's people. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Did you hear that? You know, on one hand, Moses is saying, God's people should not fear him that they don't want to be near him. On the other hand, Moses is saying they should fear him. It's right to have a godly fear in their hearts so that they will not sin against him. You know, the Bible repeatedly tells us about who God is and what it describes to us about God and his character is that God is a holy God and he does not compromise his justice. He will punish sin. And so, it is right for sinners to fear approaching God on their own merits. If sinners were to stand before God based in and of themselves on their own merits, there is every reason for them to be afraid because they deserve God's wrath on them. It's just like what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, it would be right for us to remember that we should all be cast into eternal judgment where Jesus explains the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's eternal judgment that is coming upon us because of our sin. And there is nothing to stop that except for God making a way to come to us in the person and work of Christ to save us from the wrath that we deserve. Isn't that the good news of Christmas? You know, not that we came to God, but that God came to us to save us from our sin. You know, that news, that good news, when we really understand it and when we trust it, should cause our hearts to rejoice. But according to the Bible, it should also cause us to fear God, That would be an entirely appropriate response to understanding the good news for us. You know, Christians don't fear God thinking that God is going to judge them. It's not like they doubt God's promises. They know God has saved them from the wrath to come. But they fear him because they now know him. They now know how great and powerful he is. They know how strong he is. They also know how merciful he is. And so they know that he is the only place they have to flee from the coming wrath. You know, they know that he has saved them. It doesn't mean that Christians should live carelessly in the world, but the Bible says that they should live carefully, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. Or as you have been reading in the book of Leviticus, Christians should live in this world, taking very seriously what God has said in Leviticus, which is, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, the difference for Christians is before they did not know God, but now they do know him. And friends, we should know there is no category in the Bible where there is someone who belongs to God, who says they trust in him and does not fear him. All those who are God's people fear him and they should. You know, when God opens our eyes to see who he really is, it is a miracle, isn't it? It is a supernatural work of this ho- for the holy spirit to open our eyes so that we may behold God. We may see him for who he really is. Do you know what happens when God opens our eyes? We begin to see his greatness. We begin to comprehend something of that incomprehensible majesty of God. Compared to him, Isaiah says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are like dust on the scales. You know, as we live our lives in this world, we fear all kinds of people in our lives. We fear what they think of us. We fear what they can do to us. But as we read God's word and God begins to show us who he really is, we come to see how big our God is. And that causes our hearts to fear him. You know, many of you, I'm sure, must have heard of C.S. Lewis and uh, his famous stories, The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, in this story, if you have never read it, there is a character who is a lion, and uh, this lion is a Christ figure in this story. And many of the interactions that this lion, whose name is Aslan, has with other characters in the story help to describe our relationship with God. So let me just read something from, a few lines from that story. And this is about who the lion Aslan is. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, I must say... It is a common temptation for many Christians, I'm sure many of us in this room, including myself, at times to want to run away from God. So I've heard many people say that, you know, I don't feel like going to church when I'm struggling with my sin. Or I don't feel like reading the Bible because I'm not doing well spiritually. Or I don't feel like I can have fellowship with God's people because I've fallen into sin. You know, we have to recognize that the only reason we want to run away from God is because we don't see who he is rightly, as the Bible tells us. You know, we have to remember that the reason why God is pleased with us, the reason why God has not judged us and spares his judgment from us has nothing to do with us and our good works, but it is because of who he is. It is because of what Christ has done. So we have to remember that there is no place that guilty sinners can go to to find comfort and refuge, especially in their weakest moments, than Christ. So they may want to deny themselves Christ when they feel like they're struggling. But that would be a very foolish thing to do. You know, God does not compromise his justice, but we are also told throughout the Bible that he is compassionate He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And if you really understand who God is, wouldn't you want to be shown mercy by this great God? He invites us to come to him. He invites us when we feel like we want to run away from him. He invites us even at the lowest point of our lives to come to him. He invites us even when we have rebelled long and hard against him. He calls us to come to him. And experience his mercy while there is time. And that is because who he is. He is a merciful God. And that's why he calls us to come to him. You know, on that note, as we read verses 51 to 53 of Mary's song, we are told that there are also people that God is against, who God hates and we are told after that the kinds of people that god is for so we learn that he is against those who are proud in their thoughts in the thoughts of their hearts we learn that he takes down those who are mighty from their thrones and those who are rich now that doesn't mean that god is against everyone in positions of power and authority or somebody who is wealthy but neri i believe has in her mind as she's writing this specific events and times In the history of the nation of Israel, when God has done this. And we can think of countless times in the Old Testament where God has brought down those who are arrogant and proud and those who were seeking after their own glory, can't we? Perhaps Mary had in mind Daniel chapter 4 as she was writing this. And she might be thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know that story when Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace and he looks out at his kingdom at Babylon? And says, is this not the great Babylon which I built my my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Can you imagine someone saying those words? And God immediately humbled him. He became like an animal, like a madman, after God humbled him. You see, God hates the proud. And God hates all those who rely on themselves. God hates All those who are seeking their own glory. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. So, friends, we should stop and ask ourselves do we see this kind of pride in our hearts? Are we blind to the fact that maybe we are seeking after our own glory? Are we denying that? You know, God who is all-knowing, who searches even the thoughts of our hearts, who knows every desire of our hearts, we can't hide it from him, knows what we are thinking. So we should be honest and ask ourselves, are we devoting our lives to pursuing our glory or is it the glory of God that we are after? You know, as we come to the end of this year, just think back to how we have lived our lives and what we have pursued this last year have we been pursuing our glory or is it the glory of God that we've been after? And do we come to God on the basis of things we have done or achieved or earned? Do we think that we deserve better from God because of who we are and the things that we have done for him? If so, my dear brothers and sisters, heed the warning here in Mary's song. She says, God scatters and destroys those who are proud. All those who don't fear Him. All those who don't think they need Him. That is who God is against. But, consider who God is for. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills those who are hungry with good things. Now, that doesn't mean literally the poor. But it's like what Jesus says on, on the sermon on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, this is talking about the hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. It is talking about a humility of the spirit. You know, there are people who recognize that there is nothing that they can offer God, that they have nothing by which they can commend themselves before God, that apart from the mercy of God, God should not accept them. And they throw themselves on God to find his mercy. Those are the kinds of people that God loves to fill and give, give good gifts to. He promises to fill them. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, God promises to fill them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. All those who would come to him for mercy, who know that they can't, they, they have no resources of their own. So God with his great might hates his enemies and judges them, and God with his great might pours his love on those who run to him for mercy. That's who this God is. And we have seen the most lavish display of God's mercy in this world, and one that I must say is completely surprising and unexpected. The world with all its wisdom could not have come up with the way that God would show his love, his extravagant love to sinners in this world. And isn't that what we celebrate during Christmas? You know, Jesus would be the baby born in Bethlehem, but he would also become the savior crucified on the cross. You know, it's not just enough that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, which, you know, many people get about Christmas. But we must ask ourselves, Why did he come? Why was he born? As miraculous as his birth was, what was the purpose of it? The cross was the destiny of the newborn baby that we celebrate during Christmas. So you cannot make sense of Christmas without the cross of Christ. You cannot understand what is the significance of the birth of Jesus without looking at the death of Jesus. You know, the Christmas story was always about the cross of Christ. You know, even 2,000 years ago, the celebration of Christmas was looking forward to the cross of Christ. Every gospel writer that wrote about the birth of Jesus had that in mind as they were writing down about the birth of Jesus. And so the birth of Jesus and the cross where he died tells us a lot about how God wants to deal with us personally, doesn't it? He tells us that God wants to show his great love to sinners. And he shows his great love by coming close to us, by taking our place. That's the significance of Christmas. Christ took upon himself the judgment you and I deserve for our sins. We have rebelled against a holy God. We should have deserved to die. We we deserve to be condemned for all of eternity. But what did God do? He sent Christ to pay the price that we could never have paid. You know what has become good news to us? Was not so good for Jesus when he hung on the cross, when he had to drink that cup in full and endure God's wrath that he didn't deserve, but you and I deserve for our sins. It didn't go so well for him, did it? But Jesus, through his death and his victorious resurrection, defeated Satan for us. He canceled the guilt that we have incurred because of our sin against God. No more are we guilty. And he has accomplished peace for us. The peace that the world is searching for, but they cannot find. Peace with God. So friends, I hope you see this Christmas who God is and how much he wants to show mercy on sinners. I hope you see the lengths to which God would go to love sinners. I hope you see not just this Christmas, the miraculous birth of Jesus, but the great price that God paid so that sinners can be saved. Now, friend, maybe you are here and you're not following Christ. And maybe you wanted to f- go to church on Christmas to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And you are here. Or maybe you've been coming to church for a while and you haven't considered this. But I want to encourage you don't be distracted by the way the world celebrates Christmas. I assure you there is nothing you can learn about the true meaning of Christmas by watching the way the world celebrates about Christmas or from Hallmark movies. You know, I want to encourage you, don't just see a cute little baby, but see God's son. See the king in all his glory. See how he died and rose from the dead to justify sinners. And I want to encourage you that if you see all of that, Pray that God will show you that you are a sinner and you have no means by which you can help yourself you can say, or you can save yourself. And I want to encourage you to pray that God will enable you to welcome Jesus into your life. Don't wait, repent, and trust in Jesus. There is no fellowship that is more wonderful than having fellowship with this Savior, Emmanuel, who is God with us. If you want to know more about the gospel, if you want to know more about what that means for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus, come find me after the service or Mario, and um, I'm sure others in the church would love to talk to you more about that. So Mary has sung about how God has dealt with her personally, and Mary has sung about how God deals with all those who fear him, how much mercy he lavishes on them. And finally, she ends the song in verses 54 and 55 by telling us why. And it is because God is faithful to keep his promise to his people. You know, Mary realizes at this point, or maybe before this, what has happened to her is a result of what God has promised thousands of years ago. So in Genesis chapter 12, God makes an important promise to Abraham that through him and his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Mary's point is this, that from the very beginning, God knew exactly where he was going. Think of that. Throughout thousands of years, God was directing all of human history towards this moment where Mary would hear this news and know that she is about to deliver the Messiah into the world. Despite his people's repeated failures, despite cataclysmic events like the people of God being sent into exile, despite the 400 years before this when there was complete silence from heaven, when there was no prophecy, despite the Roman occupation at this time, despite the corruption of the leaders of Israel, despite persecution to God's people, against all odds, God's most difficult-to-keep promise has come to fulfillment in Jesus. What an amazing thing that is, isn't it? And what an amazing lesson that is for us. See, the Bible is painting a big picture of God's faithfulness, spanning thousands and thousands of years. And this is why we need to know it. It is because when it comes to the few years of our lives, we will know that God is no less faithful. If God has been faithful in keeping his promise for thousands of years, even for the 70 or 80 years of our lives, God is going to be no less faithful to us. Think of what God has done for us over thousands of years. For all those of us in this room who have repented and trusted in Jesus, God had each and every one of us in mind when he spoke to Abraham. And he gave that promise. And over the thousands of years, when so many things could have derailed God's plan, God had each and every one of us in mind. And God has kept his promise to bless the children of Abraham. Now you may be wondering, who are these children of Abraham? Who are these children that he talks about here? And I wish we had time to go into it. But Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse 29, if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, all those who trust in Christ, all the Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ are the true children of Abraham. He says, Paul says in Galatians, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So friends, in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has kept his promise to bless the nations. And we are recipients of that. Even here in India, the gospel has come. And that is because of God's faithfulness. So we can trust him too, to keep his promises to us too. Think of the promises that we are waiting to see fulfilled. God promises to work for our good every day. God promises to be with us through his spirit. And God promises to bring us home, to be with him in glory forever. You know, sometimes we get confused, don't we? We live in this world and we are confused, but God is never confused. We have doubts about God and his purposes. But God knows exactly what he's doing. His promises never fail. He's faithful. You know, God can seem very slow to us, but God is working at exactly the right speed. He's never late. He's always on time. And his timing is perfect. You know, if you have ever used... uh, public transportation like trains, as I'm sure many of you have living in Mumbai. You know that the schedule of trains can run your lives. So if you live in a city where the trains are not on time, and I, I'm not, I have no idea what it is like in Mumbai, but let's just say you lived in a city where the trains are not on time. You will find it very hard to be on time any, anywhere. Probably you will get, you will be getting used to being late every time you go anywhere, and you start showing up to the train station late because you know that the train system is not reliable, you know that the train is gonna be late. But imagine then you go to a country or a place where the train is always on time and runs on a strict schedule. And maybe the first time you show up late and you learn your lesson, that the train system is very reliable because you miss the train. You know, the first couple of times you show up and you miss the train and you learn that, oh, the train system is actually very reliable here. So then you make an effort to be there on time every day, and it trains you to be on time everywhere else. You see, the trustworthiness of the train schedule changes the way you live your life. So also, if we believe and see that God has been faithful to his people in the past, it trains us to have confidence that he will be faithful in the future as well. How do we have confidence that God will be faithful to keep his promises to us. Let's do what Mary did. You know, it seems like she knew her Bible really well. She's recounting of God's deeds in the past to his people, his faithfulness. And even though Christians don't like reading the Old Testament, it is full of accounts of God's faithfulness to his people. Isn't this what the psalmists do in the Psalms? You know, we've been reading the Psalms this morning. But each and every one of the Psalms is about recounting God's faithful works to his people and reminding themselves that God is faithful. You know, even when we are overwhelmed by trials and temptations in this life, when we see the horrors and suffering of this world, and even when we struggle with our own sin, you know, we should trust that Jesus will come again and he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and that is because God is faithful to fulfill his promise to us. You know, let's spend time in God's word so that we are, remem- we are reminded that God is always faithful to fulfill his promise to us. So let me conclude. You know, as we celebrate Christmas, I want to encourage you, you know, don't just see this child in a manger, but see that this baby who we celebrate was also crucified on the cross one day and is now at the right hand of the Father, and will come one day. And on that day, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. That is the Savior we celebrate for Christmas. That is the Savior we eagerly wait for. Let's praise him and let's worship him. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you will help us remember that you have kept the hardest to keep promise of all by sending Jesus to die for our sins and rise victoriously so that he might become our Lord. Help us to believe, Lord, that you will keep all your promises to us. Amen. Now we're going to take just a few minutes, um, maybe a minute of silence to just reflect on what we have heard and maybe consider reading that song again of Mary. And take a moment just to reflect on what we have heard and I will close us in a minute with a benediction from the book of Jude. Hear these words from Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.